Welcome to Orphaned Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and with me as always is the woman who may be undercover right now is Lydia. <laughs> I, I never... I. You're getting me more and more these days because early on, I felt like ready, like whatever you'd say, I would just respond to it. Now I'm like, okay, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? And I'm thinking about the movie and I'm listening to what you're saying. And then I'm like, no, it just blows it for me. I need to just stop expecting it. Hi. Hi, Lydia. Yeah, I, I have to admit there are some films where I sit there and go, ah, oh, I can't think of a pun for this one. <laughs> This one is full of puns. I think uh, maybe it was one of the easier ones to go for. Well, before we go any further, I want to first thank everyone for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. Orphan Entertainment is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please, if you have the option to do so, rate and review the show. It does help get the show out to more people. Another great way to, to help is just by sharing the episode you're listening to on whatever social media platform you use. If you are a Facebook user, there's a group that you can join, and this is a great place to find out what we're going to be covering next and an easy place to leave any comments on the films or episodes. We have a YouTube channel where you can watch many of the films we have covered here on the show. Just go to YouTube.com and search for Orphaned Entertainment. If you would like to email us with any comments, suggestions, or feedback on this or any episode, please type or record a message and send it to orphanedentertainment at gmail.com. You can follow the link in the show notes to all our social media sites as well as learn how you can support the show financially. All these links are also on our webpage at orphanedentertainment.com. Let's listen to one of the five-minute mysteries and a promo for another podcast. And when we return, we will attempt to get to the truth of 1930s conspiracy. Another five-minute mystery. It's got to be slick. No, it won't work, Roger. It's too uncertain. But there's nothing to go wrong. Now listen. Those custom boys are used to naive, stupid smuggling. We've got to be smart, that's all. And you think your idea is... Look, Janice, why isn't it? We get on the boat. We're strangers. We never speak to each other. No one on the boat can connect us in any way. Now, I get off first, and right away I have my trunk and bags examined. By the time I'm through, you're off and you're waiting. Then... Yes, but that timing... How can I be sure there won't be a lot of people under letter G and only me at K? For heaven's sake, Janice, you can stall somehow. We'll be near enough to each other to see how things are going. Okay, okay. Then I pick up my three bags and walk over toward you. I'm clumsy and I don't see where I'm going. I bump into you, and as I do, you drop my wallet. I pick it up. With your hands full of bags, I suppose. Well, maybe you pick it up. We don't have to rehearse a scene like that. If anyone thinks he sees you drop it, my initials and identification will prove it's mine, especially as I've just been through the customs. It'll look as if I had it in my hand. Mm, sounds good, Roger. Good. It's perfect. Why, with a diamond market the way it is, we'll clean up in America, honey. Roger, if this works, you're a genius. <laughs> to declare, Mr. Grizzle? Uh, that's all. You're clear then, Mr. Grizzle. Guess you're glad to be home. I certainly am. More than you can get. Yeah, it must be pretty tough in Lisbon, even for Americans. Oh, can you manage that packing by yourself? Oh, yes, thanks. I must be clumsy about this now. Ah, there's Janice, good girl. She's just arrived. Fine. Well, here we go. Oh! I beg your pardon. Look where you're going. Oh, oh, just a minute. I I think you dropped this wallet. What? Oh, yes, yes. I, I guess I did. Oh, thanks very much. Wait a minute, sir. He didn't drop that, miss. You did. Oh, no, you're mistaken. Because that isn't my wallet. Well, indeed it isn't. I saw you drop it, miss. Say, what's going on here? Oh, nothing's going on. This gentleman ran into me and dropped his wallet, and I picked it up, and that's all. How do you know it's his wallet? Because his initials are on it. Oh, they are, are they? What are your names? 
Janice Kite. I'm Roger Griswold, but I don't... Well, Janice Kite and Roger Griswold, you're both under arrest for smuggling. How did the customs official discover their trick? In just a minute, we'll hear. First, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Jeff Owens. And I'm Richard Chamberlain. And we want you to join our club, the Classic Horrors Club. Every month, Richard and I host the Classic Horrors Club podcast, where we talk about our favorite subject, horror movies. Some of them are classics. We all go a little mad sometimes. And some definitely aren't. What you see is real. What's done is done, and what I've done is right. It's the work of science. But we love them all the same. We also have special theme months where we highlight the legendary stars. And we head to the drive-ins of the past every summer for exciting double and triple features. Hi, I'm Chili Dilly, the personality pickle. And we even have occasional guests. My obsession, and it is truly an obsession, I suppose, of Frankenstein the True Story dates back to when it first aired in two parts on NBC in 1973. So join the fun and listen to the Classic Horrors Club podcast today. Hosted by SoundCloud, we're available wherever fine podcasts are found. And for even more fun, check out the video companion on our YouTube channel. And remember, we sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. And now, back to our story. Look here, you can't arrest me for smuggling. Well, you remember I asked you, Miss Kite, how you knew it was his wallet that had dropped. Yes. You said you knew it was his because his initials were on it. Well, aren't they? Yes, his initials are there, all right, but on the inside. And when the wallet dropped to the floor, it didn't fall open so you couldn't have seen them. Therefore, I knew you had previous knowledge of them. Yes, you two had a nice little package of 15 diamonds in that wallet. And now, how about a free ride to the station house? <laughs> Conspiracy is an RKO Pictures release directed by William Christie Cabanet. It is an adaptation of the stage play The The Conspiracy by Robert Baker and John Emerson and has no connection to RKO's 1939 film of the same name. The film stars Bessie Love as Margaret Holt, Ned Sparks as Winthrop Little Nemo Clavering, and Hugh Trevor as reporter John Howell. Margaret and her brother Victor, the assistant DA, have been trying for the past four years to get evidence on James Marco and his narcotic-pushing gang. Margaret managed to get a job as Marco's stenographer. When Margaret gets caught by Marco stealing a list of all the gang members, he threatens her and her brother. In an act of desperation, she stabs Marco dead. She flees the scene and tries to get to her brother at a local restaurant before the gang can nab him, but she's too late. Escaping them, she finds herself at a local women's shelter where she happens to meet the reporter who witnessed the scrap at the restaurant and intervene, allowing her to escape. She confides in him and he hatches a plan to keep her safe by having her hired out as the private stenographer of eccentric mystery writer Winthrop Clavering, who managed to figure out the truth about her as well. Now the two men are all that stand between her and the ruthless gang. Bessie Love's career spanned eight decades. Born Juanita Horton, she was visiting a film set when she was advised to meet up with up-and-coming D.W. Griffith. He signed her to a personal contract and informed her her name was too long and too difficult to pronounce. (laughs) All the good old days. (laughs) Hey, we don't like your name. You better change it. David Daniel Kaminsky, too long. Now you're Danny Kay. (laughs) I think he actually said it was too long for the Marquise. Oh, that's hilarious. Well... That makes two of us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Griffith's associate, Frank Woods, gave Horton the stage name Bessie Love. Bessie because any child can pronounce it, and love because we want everyone to love her. She worked with Griffith's fine arts pictures before moving to Pathé, then Vitagraph. Once her Vitagraph contract ended, she became a free agent. Most of her early career was spent playing young, innocent girls, And now free to pick and choose, she sought more dramatic roles. And she also learned to sing, dance, and even play the ukulele. Because of her performance in The King on Main Street in 1925, Love is credited with being the first person to dance the Charleston on film. And that helped popularize it in the United States. That's amazing. She continued to act in films as well as on stage. She semi-retired from film in the early 30s to do traveling musical review, uh, moved to England and to marry and raise a daughter. 
After World War II, she returned to acting, primarily in theater and BBC radio, but occasionally appeared in small roles in British films, often appearing as the American tourist. <laughs> Ned Sparks was a Canadian-born actor known for his deadpan expression and nasally monotone delivery. It was on Broadway that he developed his trademark deadpan expression while portraying a hotel clerk in the play Little Miss Brown. He caught the attention of MGM studio head Louis B. Mayer, who signed him to a six-picture deal. Sparks appeared in numerous silent films before making his talkie debut in The Big Noise in 1928. 1930s, Sparks became known for portraying dour-faced, sarcastic, cigar-chomping characters. He became so associated with that type that in 1936, the New York Times reported that Sparks had his face insured for $100,000 with Lloyds of London. Sparks later admitted the story was a publicity stunt, and he was insured for only $10,000. <laughs> In another stunt, the studio offered a reward of $10,000 to anyone who could capture Sparks smiling in a photograph. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, his face isn't exactly Betty Grable's legs, but you got to ensure <laughs> what brings you a lot of value. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sparks appeared in 10 Broadway productions and over 80 films, and he retired from films in 1947, saying that everyone should retire at 65. <laughs> Hugh Trevor began his silent film career in 1927, but did not fare as well as some of others with the talkies. He retired from acting in 1931 and appeared in a total of 19 films alongside many famous film figures of that era, including Mary Astor, Noah Berry, and Wheeler and Woolsey. Unfortunately, he passed away due to complications from an appendectomy surgery in 1933. So it was a, uh, a life cut short for our young uh, reporter. Yeah, very short. I, I, I think I've gotten really suspicious because just knowing how Hollywood was in the 30s, it makes you wonder. No. <laughs> Christopher's just shaking his head. No, Lydia. No, there's no conspiracy theory here. <laughs> no. No, it he is, uh, apparently retired. Yeah, he uh, his career just didn't really take off uh, with the talkies. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit when we talk about this film. Mm. And he retired and went to selling insurance. And so, I mean, he had a life outside of film. Mm -hmm. And just uh, unfortunately, his uh, life was cut short by just... Bad luck. An unfortunate, yeah, bad yeah. luck is exactly what it boils down to. I had read he still was getting offers for films, but uh, I guess I, I, I can't recall if he he was. Uh, gosh, was he in the insurance business with his brother? Is that what it was? I believe it was a brother or yeah, a relative or friend. Yeah, and he opened up an, an insurance company, and then two years later died at the age of thirty. So yeah, yeah, I think he was specializing with insurance that had to do with people working within film oh, too. So he was, he was still kind of connected to the industry. Yeah, yeah, pretty really sad. I mean, that's very very young to die at any time. So yeah, and with such a very con although. In 1930, I'm, I'm sure surgery had carried more risks than it does today. Significantly more, but, yeah. But it sounds like such a simple and, you know, innocent uh, operation yeah. to have. Well, the number of people that, yeah, I mean, first of all, there are a lot of organs around your appendix, yeah? <laughs> but the number of people even today, you know, it, the safest hospitals that have ever existed and still people die from, you know, accidental punctures and things. So, yeah, you're exactly right. It would have been a lot more dangerous back then. Almost mm -hmm. 100 years ago now. Uh, that's all I had on the films and the actors. This is one of those films that it just sort of, it existed and it happened, but there's <laughs> not a whole lot, you know, around it. Mm -hmm. There's one other character in this that I didn't really get into her very much, but I found her really interesting, uh, played by R Rita Leroy. And she is the, I think they call her the foreign woman that was visiting the deceased. Oh, okay. She just, she, there's a scene with her in it, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but her movements in this scene are so almost like otherworldly, and I don't know if it's her build or if it's the outfit they have her in. I don't think it's intended to be, you know, strange or anything like that, but... Uh, she's definitely got a very striking look to her, very, like, strong facial structure and very she looks like a very very tall thin woman um but just another person to look out for when you're watching this movie she's pretty interesting and we should talk about this film some <laughs> obviously going into the film like 
almost all of the others we talked to knew nothing about the film before watching it and everything. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, almost every description you read says that it's Margaret and Victor's father died or was killed by this gang leader. And unless I missed it, there's nothing in the film to indicate directly that their any parent or relative suffered at the hands of this guy. There's no direct comment about it. But there is the scene where she, she's been helping her brother. Her brother is the assistant DA who's on this big kick to try to clean up the city sort of thing. Cause that's what all DAs in movies do. Yes. That's, that's what DAs do. We don't know anything else that DAs do. <laughs> Thanks Hollywood. <laughs> and, and Hugh asks, well, how does, how can your brother let you get, mixed up in this. His fight is my fight. We've got to get Schema Marco's gang because it's narcotics they peddle and I've seen the workings of that gang with my own eyes. I've seen little girls drugged in filthy joints. Boys that beat their own mothers to get money to buy the stuff. And men and women that do things or even savages couldn't do Things I couldn't think of. Things I don't want to remember. Oh, there, there. I've seen the agony and the delirium of when the stuff has stopped. And the last stage of all, when the, when the poor body's broken. And nothing's left but the poor aching brain that suffers. Can't sleep. That's what that gang stands for. That's why I made my brothers let me join in the fight. You definitely get the impression that she has some first-hand experience mm-hmm. and may have even suffered some physical abuse. Mm-hmm. It makes you wonder, oh, well, and she talks about, you know, women being forced to take these drugs and, and you know, she says things I won't even talk about. I mean, genuinely, from the way she talks about it, if you've got very much imagination and have read very much about human rights in, you know, any country, then you can get a very vivid image of what she's referring to for sure. Um, I don't think at any point she ever specifically says it, but she talks about, you know, people that would do horrible things to their parents that, you know, no, nobody, not even a savage would do, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and genuinely probably her shining moment in the film, her distress and discussing that. I, I think that was the moment where I thought, wow, she, this, she's actually a good dramatic actress. Like I believe her distress while she's talking about this, even with it being a 1930s movie and being, a uh, a little melodramatic. You definitely believe she knows what she's talking about. I think you're right. I don't think they ever specifically say, though, that they killed my father. But you definitely get this kind of implication there. Implication that certainly someone close to them has been a victim of drug addiction. And that may have actually even resulted in abuse of them or or worse. Or I'm not, I'm not even going to try to guess the type of abuse but honestly you watch her and the way i mean she does that really great you you almost see her shiver yes when she's talking about it and at, at, towards the end some of her lines and you're like would this just went to a really dark place yeah. i don't <laughs> and i'm so glad it only went that far yeah and went no further yeah there's a movie that i watched a, a relative a modern movie that i watched about a a young woman that works in a a European brothel where all the women are habitually drugged, and mm-hmm. this and, and it's uh, it's a you know <laughs> highly tense movie with really horrible horrible moments in it. We'll put it that way. And right. her dialogue at this moment brought that movie back to my mind. So sure. it's it's certainly it's interesting because she doesn't say anything graphic. Being 1930, even though this is technically pre-code, yes, mm-hmm. yes, even correct. even though this is technically pre-code, she is still you know they still restrain how much she actually says. But you definitely get the idea. Yeah, and I agree that that is a fantastic moment for her, and she does really. I mean, talk about some really great drama chops mm-hmm. uh for for a woman who started her, her career playing the you know the cute blonde or whatever in, in films 
yeah, she, I'm glad that she decided to try to break out of that mold mm-hmm. that, that she had been set in to look for something. It's interesting. When I first saw her in the movie, I thought, oh, this is a kind of an interesting looking woman. Like she's not what you would expect to be the, the, the bottle blonde chipper kind of character. Her face, like her, her appearance is a little bit different. Like, and she just doesn't have that super cutesy look that a lot of really big starlets at this time had. But once she gets into this and some of the other, you know, we're, it, we're obviously still very close to the silent era here. There's still some carryover from that, a little bit of overacting. But mm-hmm. she, once she gets into these moments, it's completely like nobody else could have pulled this off the way she does. Early on when she's doing these sort of, she's upset and, oh, I'm going to faint. And it's so exaggerated, her movements and the, yeah. Yeah, you don't need sound to know that she's <laughs> flustered and she's gonna she's she's gonna swoon. Mm-hmm. You can see it coming or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then, I think that overacting, probably naturally, mm-hmm. because like you said, coming so close to the the silent era, is what makes that dramatic scene that much more powerful. Mm-hmm. It makes it seem like maybe it wasn't written to be that bad, mm-hmm. but because she takes it to that next level just by natural i can't think of the way they'll describe it um, just, just just with her just with the um the depth of her emotiveness the the typical overacting oh, that comes with that comes with um you know talky films this close to the silent era yes. it just takes you to that next level where you're like ah yeah <laughs> yep yeah and we uh when we were watching this i i at a couple of different points thought this is and then especially re-watching it I thought this is blocked like a play this is it the people entering when they they enter and leaving when they leave and the the way the dialogue cuts in and out and that was before I knew it was a play I was like this just feels like a play like it feels like they just didn't do a good job of making a movie like somebody wrote a play and then of course it turns out it was a play <laughs> and, yeah. and it makes this this story makes so much sense and the way that this is the way that this story rolls through makes so much sense especially when you take out the flashbacks it makes so much sense as a play and it's Mm-hmm. It feels like this would be a great play to watch, but in and and so the overacting and I don't I'm not I don't know who would have directed the play, um, but if the if the person doing the directing for well no the person doing the directing for this movie actually has a fascinating history of his own, look him up very interesting traveled with Pancho Villa, <laughs> and I was like whoa this guy has an amazing life but. I don't know if he had any any experience with plays or not. That just so much of this movie though runs like a play that the overacting I sort of took it almost as if it was filmed as if it were a play, as if the people who had done it had done it before as a play and just did the same thing they had done on stage. Many of the uh, setting the scenes or the camera work was very much a static camera very, in a big room. Yeah, very static. But the film starts with some actually interesting camera work. Uh, at least on, on, on the city, it does the, you know, it the camera pans over to the, and zooms in on a building and then zooms up to a window to get you into the window. Mm-hmm. But then from that point on, that's where the camera suddenly gets locked down. Mm-hmm. It, and you're lucky if it moves left or right. Those early movement shots felt clunky to me too. It starts off, I think, a, a wide shot of the city and then has a very long shot of a clock showing 5.30. A very, very mm-hmm. long shot. Like they want to make sure you know it's 5.30 in the city. <laughs> right. And then there, there just is, there's some awkwardness about it. And so I don't, I don't feel like you lose anything by not having more of that. <laughs> No, that's true. <laughs> but it is interesting. You are right. They start off. And even the there are other outside scenes in the flashbacks, in the forms of flashbacks, that still feel very static. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though I don't think they are. It's really interesting. I, thinking back about it, I almost feel like I need to have it re, you know, running right now as we're talking about it. But it feels like there is some camera motion. 
but maybe it's just there are some a couple of cuts and there's a lot of action going on uh, specifically at the scene outside of the I want to call it the Copacabana but I know it's just something cafe <laughs> the restaurant the restaurant there you go uh, there's some action going on so I think maybe it feels like there's more camera movement than there really is and there definitely are a few there are cuts within within scenes like it, near the end when um Mr. has a really weird name that I can't. Clavering. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Little Nemo. Little Nemo. There you go. I'll call him that. When Little Nemo is, you know, like going over to the window and then he's going over here and going. There are cuts in it. It's not just a wide shot and just people moving around essentially a stage. We've mm-hmm. seen movies like that for sure from yes. about this era. But it does feel that way for about the first half of the movie. And then at some point in the second half of the movie, suddenly it feels like there's a lot more movement, a lot more camera change, a lot more camera movement, a lot more scene changes. And even though really every scene is just one room, but there's some angle changes and then there's a lot more action happening. The first half of the movie is mostly just people explaining to each other that they didn't kill somebody or that they did kill somebody. <laughs> and it's just right. kind of long conversations there's a part that confuses me too, and I, I this is such a small thing, but they when uh, when she first when Bessie's character first goes over to the to the public house to the like mm-hmm. assistance house the agency, and they sit down at the desk. She sits down with the lady, and they're talking about who she is. And there's a a paper hawker, off screen calling about the and the lady at the desk calls hey boy over here and he just comes he just over. walks in it's like they're in a building with no fourth wall <laughs> it's like where did this paper boy come from it like in and, and how could she sitting at her desk inside of an office inside of a building just wave at a boy and get him to come I, in why only thought is maybe he comes into the foyer for the people that live there in case anyone in the apartment. I'd be pretty irritated uh, if a paperboy walked in my front door and was like, "Get your paper!" <laughs> yeah, murder, murder! I'd be like, "Get out of my house, or there will be." Like, yeah, even if it was my apartment building, I'd be like, "What are you doing in here?" <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a little strange too. It was a little odd. There and then there is a, there is probably worth talking about. Martha, who's Clavery's Clavery, <laughs> Little Nemo's Little Nemo's servant, and mm-hmm. and a bizarre and totally unnecessary character in this movie. Not not bizarre from the pers- uh, bizarre from the perspective that it's like this strange carryover. Martha, Martha, I'm coming, I'm coming. Stop coming and get here. You call me, sir? No, you witch. I was doing vocal exercises. Now listen. That pin-headed reporter. What did you let him in here for? Well, I surely didn't let him in, boss. He just come in. Fabricator! Not for the law. My back, please. My back. My back. Broken too? Oh, honey, you done sprained yourself. Get the kink out of it. Get the kink out of it. Higher, higher, yeah, you lump. Yeah, no. Higher, lower, lower. Ah, ah. Dad, that's dad. it. That's it. Dad, no. That's honey. it. Ah. Oh, the rub you good. Ah, that's it. That's it. That's it. Ah. Dad, ah. no, honey, rest your poor back. Ah. You, you better, honey. Say, who told you to come rubbing my back? Too darn the fishes. Now, where's my pipe? Gotta get to work. Where's my pipe? Where's my pipe? I done see that old pipe. Stop scratching your head. You couldn't reach your brain with a steam shovel. Now, where have you gone and hid that pipe? Where's my pipe? Where's the pipe? Now, here it is. Right where I left it. Rotten old pipe. Smell a bit of the shame of skunk. Smoke it in the park and all the little birds gonna drop dead. A a woman that is obviously his servant and obviously like they're trying to do the the humorous servant role. And the lady that does it is really interesting to watch and she's 
funny and her like, I want to say DeSoto. I don't think that's the right term for it, but she has like, or Soto, I think is the right word for it. She will say things under her voice to like dig Mm -hmm. at Little Nemo. And she's so funny, but it's sort of bizarre. It's almost like they added her just to be able to stretch out the story a little longer because she doesn't have any involvement in the story. She doesn't really do anything. Um, you know, the, the role she's meant to do at the end of the film to unlock the door, you don't see her do it. And so it's completely unneeded. It, it, there's a lot to this movie that feels like a play and it feels like there are moments in it that they could have carried through. Oh, the opening scene. Sorry, I'm monologuing. I don't mean to. The <laughs> opening scene is three people in a, like a hotel lobby or a hotel hallway talking about how boring New York City is. And it's this kind of youngish man and then this kind of older couple. Oh, going home, Ed? Well, you're not going home, Ed. Yeah, I'm going home. But you ain't been in New York three days. Well, I'll say three days is a plenty. Yeah, I'll say the same. Say, this is a slow town, that's what I say. A slow town. Yeah, there's more doing at home at the corner of Maine and Elm. No, I'll say this. I thought it would be different, too, with all the wickedness and sin you hear tell of. And take this here hotel now. Why, it's like an old folks' home. No, I'll say. Why, nothing happens. That's a lot of hooey. But nothing could happen. Well, I'm gone home where I can get some real excitement. I'll say. Nothing doing here. Well... I'll be seeing you. Yeah. Come on, Ed. Hey, so you know he's right. I think we ought to be. And I think it's supposed to be ironic or something, because they're out in the hallway complaining about how boring they're finding New York City, despite the fact that oh, they hear about all this sin and debauchery going on. <laughs> but they don't then, find any of it. They don't find any, and so they walk away, and then again, the camera actually moves forward to the door and then passes through the door where there's a murder that just mm-hmm. happened. And it's ironic, but... Why? What? This is early film. I know it's early film, but why? Like, it makes sense in a play, but Mm -hmm. it does feel like in a movie, they, it, even in a play, I feel like it would make a little bit more sense to have those people show up later. You know, it's, it's a little bit odd to have... Or show up again or something. Make him sort of a running gag. Yeah, or... yeah. Like when she, when they're on the street and, she, you know, she's struggling to get away from the gangsters, have them in the background. Like, well, that was a lot of excitement, wasn't it? Maybe I'll stay for a while, you know? Or just coming around the corner after everything else is done. And saying, oh, this city's so boring. Yeah, exactly. Right. But it, it never does that. So there, it feels like there are a couple of hangers out there that it's... It, they, there's potential left un, unfulfilled. <laughs> and talking about that and the whole, it feels like they're trying to inject comedy into this film. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And unfortunately, I think that happens a lot in this film, which I don't understand. The entire character of Cleverly, yeah, Little Nemo, it's like watching one of these films where, you know, we talked about the uh, Woolsey and uh, uh, was it Walter and Woolsey or whatever that was yes, the comedy team or 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 any of these other films where we saw that turned out to be just vehicles for a really popular uh, comedian yes. at you know vaudevillian comedian at the time and that's what this felt like with these characters this entire oh with yeah, him mm-hmm. with him in particular because you're talking about the scene with his with between him and his uh, servant his servant mm-hmm. his. his his maid or whatever. And that goes on for, I swear it's a third of the film. It feels like a very long time and you keep expecting it to lead somewhere. It's not, it goes nowhere. It's just stuck in the middle of this film. It has nothing to do with the murder. It has nothing (laughs) to do with the mystery. Well, and early on when you're first introduced to him, he's, they spend a lot of time making him seem very weird unnecessarily. He doesn't have to be as bizarre as he's. There's a little kind of a, a a quirk that he does every time the clock, you know, tolls. Every every hour, yeah, he, he does, does this, this little, like, exercise. little exercise thing, and it it doesn't it doesn't explain anything. I, you keep waiting for them to get the punchline out to say to explain why he's so weird or to explain the value of him being so weird. And they never do. It's just, it, they're just non sequiturs. 
Yeah, he's just weird. <laughs> because, <laughs> because the actor that they got for him is this actor that's known for playing these odd mm. roles. Mm-hmm. And oh, I did, I just I couldn't even stand listening to him. I didn't like <laughs> the his voice, voice at all. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, rough. that nasally <laughs> voice. And he's if he was just a little bit more of a, it'd be okay if he was still kind of curt and maybe even a little rude. Mm. He if I feel like if he had come in as a Scrooge, it would have been perfect. Yeah, and I, I actually first time watching it thought. Have I seen him as Scrooge in something? I really was. I kept, but then he like kind of got weirder and weirder, and it was like eh, I don't think I've seen him as Scrooge. But it, having a Scrooge character in this role would have made so much sense. But I think you're right. I think they kept trying to inject humor in ways that didn't add to the story. It it, it, it leads me to squeak. <laughs> Coming off that 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 scene that I was with, we were talking about with with uh, with love, mm-hmm. uh, talking about her experience with people that have been through addiction, mm. and, you know, and then you then you meet this guy, <laughs> and you're like, did I change channels? <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I understand, like you understand at a point they don't want the movie to be like super depressing. It's 1930. People want to have a laugh. You know, we've all seen. Um, that movie I can't think of, <laughs> Sullivan's Travels, but <laughs> it, it 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 doesn't feel like a smooth transition. There's no segue. Talk about some of the other cast. It hurts a little bit as well. I was just going to say I hate to speak ill the dead, but I guess there isn't actually anyone <laughs> in this film that's <laughs> Nobody's alive. He's left, yeah. Hugh Trevor as as John Howell. Yeah, yeah. He did not do so well in the talkies because I did not find him to be a very convincing actor whatsoever. He was almost as annoying as uh, Ned Sparks was, but without the nasally voice. Yeah. He's just... A little wooden. He wasn't good. Yeah. Very wooden and very just... Again, you could see the silent film actor mm-hmm. in him. Yeah. And, and he couldn't speak his lines well <laughs> at all. They all felt very... Amateur play. Good evening, Miss... Uh... Town. How do you do? My name's Howell, John Howell. I'm a... You're a reporter. Hunting a human interest story in the neighborhood house. How did you get it? I know the breed. Used to be a sob sister myself. You did? Until I decided to be something useful. Ah, they're sending a man on this kind of assignment. They generally use women. I guess they figured I could handle it. You see... Half my ancestors were women. <laughs> I, I liked him. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that that is the compliment you want as an actor in a movie. I liked him. <laughs> I thought he seemed like the the stereotypical nice guy in a movie, which is what he's meant to be. You know, he's the love interest that is gonna be like like there and smart, clever and. And he's, you know, funny. He actually, the, he had some lines that were really cute. Um, like he says, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a sob sister. I'm here to get, you know, a story, a sob story, basically. Oh, right. And she says, oh, don't they usually send women around for that? And he says, well, they figured I could do it because half my ancestors were women. You know, there's like little <laughs> bits like that that I think his humor came off as the most genuine and therefore, I enjoyed his character because he seemed like just this, like, kind of happy-go-lucky guy that, for some inexplicable reason, decided a woman that he saw once on the street had eyes that you could go to heaven in or whatever he said. Anyway, <laughs> randomly, because that's what usually happens, right? You see a girl and you immediately fall in love with her and decide that you're going to spend the rest of your life with a broken hand just to remember. Moving on. <laughs> he, but I think he does, though, have like that little bit of humor and he's kind of sweet and he's kind of um, a little bit charming. And frankly, it, honestly, there's nobody else in this movie that plays any of those roles. Nobody else in this movie is it's true. Is understanding and sweet and charming and a little bit funny. So I suppose, realistically, I probably like him because he's the only likable male character in this movie. <laughs> Although I, uh, Margaret's friend, who whose name I can't think of, uh, 
who who shows up to help her get her brother back is actually completely normal. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of ironic, actually, because there is one completely normal person in it. But then you got the weird, the weird, uh, then you got the, then you have... (laughs) <laughs> for people that speak English properly, the strange police officer that's got some kind of conflict with Little Nemo, and there's just a lot in this movie that's a little, a little confusing. Yeah, well, I think this may be. I, I'm guessing the stage play lasts longer than an hour and mm. six minutes or whatever it is the runtime. Yeah. yeah, 69 minutes I think is the runtime yeah. of this film. So the stage play obviously runs a little longer than that, and so all these characters might have larger and more important roles Mm -hmm. and instead of just excising them out completely they just sort of come in hi i'm bob bye and you never see him again (laughs) yeah yeah i feel like this i feel like this movie would be a really cute premise for a play like especially Mm -hmm. if you have like you said the recurring jokes that come back in not just one time something somebody says something and then they never show up again or you know, don't contribute to the resolution of the play in any way. But I feel like this, I would love to, I would love to actually read the real, the original script for the play for this. I feel like there's probably more to it, like you're saying. And I forget that when I'm watching the movie and it kind of like, you know, we got to the end of the movie and it ends the way you would expect this movie to end because of its era and all of the other details. And I literally said, yay, okay, good. You know? <laughs> that, was, that was the end of this movie for me was, yay, okay, time to go to bed. <laughs> you know. But I feel like there could, there, it has an interesting premise. It got potential. It just was made in an era where other things took precedence over a really involving storyline and deep empathic acting. Yeah. Unfortunately I couldn't find any real information about the play as far as was the original play strictly a drama? Was the play a comedy? Mm -hmm. Was it a, a a dramedy? (laughs) What was it? I, I can find records that it happened. I think, you know, there's like the conspiracy Broadway play from, 1912 okay that's probably it but there's no actual information about no script available (laughs) no script no it not it doesn't say this drama or anything Uh, so that's what i'm really curious is which side of the of the line did the the original the source material fall on and what did they try to adapt is this the way the play was or did they decide to go yeah that play's good it's a little heavy though so let's have a really weird guy and let's throw in these jokes and or was the play strictly a comedy and it's like well let's let's give it a little bit of an edge Mm -hmm. i I don't know which direction (laughs) it went yeah yeah it'd be interesting to know but as with so many things in this podcast we're left to speculate yeah unfortunately uh, I'm even looking at like one of the movie posters for Conspiracy, probably the one I'll be using for the the show, and it, it's you know a big conspiracy splash around, and then you have Bessie Love with like her hands the one that kind of like oh, it's almost like <laughs> comical, you know, as she's being there's some dark sinister uh, face behind her, it's like. <laughs> really don't know what you're walking into right (laughs) i've watched the film and i'm like i'm not sure what it was oh my goodness (laughs) that might just be bad art (laughs) just just saying it might just be bad art (laughs) Mm -hmm. i do see the poster you mean and it is kind of hmm Mm -hmm. Hmm. (laughs) i do find it interesting that so on the poster they've got hugh trevor which is kind of funny. I feel like mm, yeah. he wasn't around a whole lot. So it's interesting that he got that big name splashed that, across. That second billing yeah, that on second the poster? Billing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, maybe that's just a product of, oh, you always put the, the love interests together on the poster. but Yeah, because it, it was Ned Sparks with his Winthrop clavering <laughs> that took up a good portion of this of this film. Yeah. I almost said play. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> yeah, it seems, it kind of seems like all of the posters, all of the contemporary posters from the their original release are all intended to be dramatic. I don't see like, mm-hmm. 
any huge promotion of NetSparks on them. So yeah, it looks like a drama to me. So it's kind of interesting that they pushed so much, so many gags and so much humor on it. I did read somewhere that the film took a pretty big loss. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if the people did the same thing we did. You know, there might have been 50% of the people went in looking for a, a serious, you know, crime drama, mm-hmm. didn't find it. 50% of the people <laughs> went in to find a comedy, didn't find didn't it. Find it. <laughs> yeah. No, it definitely. It is, it is a movie you're kind of like, oh, I don't really, I don't really understand what was, what, what was I supposed to walk away with from there? Apparently, this film has been preserved by the Library of Congress for some Interesting. reason. Interesting. I'd love to know why they selected this one. Yeah, uh, th- uh, but unfortunately, I do not have that yeah. information. doesn't seem to exist. I wonder if it has something to do with Bessie Love being so prolific. Also, the director. Mm, well, that could be. Uh, C- yeah, Christy and the director. Cabinet. 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 Being incredibly prolific and then having some real history in his career. So it may have just something to do with some of the individuals involved. Yep, that's very possible. Because as far as the actual, the film itself, yeah, I mean, I, I'd never not want a film preserved. Right. Or, or, or whatever. <laughs> but if I had to have, if I had to, <laughs> if I had to like choose yeah. yes. <laughs> between this and some of the films that I know that, you know, are a lot worse shape mm-hmm. or lost completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I might give up conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, that is an interesting question. I think, you know, just a couple points you made about Bessie love. And then again, that scene where she's explaining, you know, the trauma of her past or the trauma of what she's seen. I think it, I, I would want to preserve that scene and I wonder, as you said, if it would be as impactful without kind of all the silliness around it. <laughs> it is interesting. So it reminds me a little bit. There's a, a much, much more recent movie with Billy Crudup in it called Stage Beauty. And it's involving the, the period of time when uh, England switched its laws regarding play production. And it went from... Um, all roles having to be played by men to allowing women to act as well on the stage. And Billy Crudup is phenomenal in it. I just, he's just an exceptional actor and it has Claire Danes in it too, but he just takes the cake in it, but it shows the, the transformation from the um, overacting, the big, the melodrama into actual acting. And I wonder into actual acting being, you know, the actual empathic, deep emotional acting that we expect today and I wonder almost if this movie doesn't capture that moment in film when it was going from the big overacting and the you know the silent film surprise and the dramatic movements and then in the same film from that you have this moment of these two people in an intimate setting and one of them explaining in you know, a very dramatic way what's happened to them. It's, it's not, if you haven't watched this movie yet, don't go into it expecting it to be the best dramatic acting you've ever seen. But for its time and with the setting that it's in, that moment of her being very kind of vulnerable and, and dramatic, it rings very true. So I almost wonder if this isn't similar to that just it just brought that other movie to mind. If it isn't kind of that that in this movie you have these two eras of acting that collide and they make one another kind of seem a little bit more unusual because they're both in the same film within moments. <clears throat> excuse me, within moments of each other. I had the thought just before uh, you started talking about that. I've talked about this being the people were going and looking for a crime drama and everything. And it really occurred to me, the drama related to the crime takes place off screen through this entire film. <laughs> it does. It does. We do see the murder. Yep. And then after that, everything happens. I just got back from, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm like, well, wait, can't we go with you? It's very Rosencrantz <laughs> and Guildenstern are dead. <laughs> It definitely has that reflection of, you know, every, all, every exit is an entrance. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it turns out this house has a water problem, and I'm going to go undercover as a as someone from the water department to go check it I out. And I'm looking see for your brother. That scene. I yeah, see twenty minutes it. later, I'm back. Exactly. I found your brother. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. It is definitely it. Yeah, no, that's actually an excellent way to describe this movie. It feels like all the really important things. It feels like we're standing backstage mm. while all the really important things are happening on the stage. That that actually is an excellent analogy. There's like two plays going on, two halves of the same play going on. It just depends on which side of the stage you sit on. <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah. No, it does feel like that. That's interesting. And then, you know, we talk about her brother almost from the very beginning of the movie. And then I think he shows up in the last 30 seconds. And it's yep. like, I'm glad they said it's her brother. Otherwise, I'd have been like, well, who's this fool? <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, you've got the Irish cop. Whoa, it's the DA. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, oh, O'Hara. Man. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. McClure. Oh, oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a bad film. I mean, I just, I wish it had been better. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish the cast was a little stronger mm-hmm. and not as nasally. <laughs> <laughs> and there's that weird moment, too, where the, the foreign woman is talking to little Nemo and you get the point that she's trying to convince him to help her out. But the way she goes about it, genuinely, she's like heavily hitting on this creepy old man. And, and then, and he's like, Oh, if I was a little younger and you're like, what? Like, does that, does that work? (laughs) (laughs) It has been such a pleasure to meet such a man. Don't I not? I come again when you send. Then I thank you myself. Goodbye. Goodbye, my dear. You almost make me feel young again. Almost. Almost. Bends down slowly, oh, with so much effort to pick something (laughs) off off the ground, and then he stands up. Almost. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, there. It everything in this movie feels very forced. I, I should say all the all the events, all the action in this movie feels very forced. All the all the events feel very. <laughs> How about if I say it like a fourth or fifth time? Will that will that get my point across any better? <laughs> it it they it. Oh, this is just one of those movies where it's so hard to explain what's wrong with it because everything's a little bit wrong with it. There's nothing in it where you're like, that's just perfect. I think they did a good job casting Bessie Love, but everything else is like, it just, it, it does, maybe that's what it is, is that it's just missing half of a play. Mm-hmm. I genuinely, would, if you told me the play is an hour longer, and has all of the scenes we're talking about, I would go, this makes, this makes so much sense now. Yes, yeah. There seems to be, I think, a theme in a lot of the films that we have watched, particularly of this era, where we come across where the star of the film is the woman, even though her character is often put in second place the to the, the side character. And they're always the stronger actors among the cast. Mm. We've we've come across that several times, all from films in these early thirties. <laughs> I ne- you know, I I didn't believe in the glass ceiling until the last couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds incredible coming from a woman, but it makes more sense with my background. But I, I genuinely didn't. But what you just said pulls this into that perspective for me, where in Hollywood, we know it, the women, you know, actresses were paid less than actors were. We know that often they didn't get top billing. Um, there was obviously an amount of chauvinism going on. But it's interesting what you just said, though. I wonder if it's the product of having to be better to be recognized, where mm. maybe some of the characters, maybe people like Hugh Trevor and not knocking him personally in any way, but maybe somebody like Hugh Trevor could come onto the set and he's six foot one and he's got that, you know, college 
look and he's he's handsome and he's tall and they're like you know what you can be a leading man but to be a woman in the film industry at this time you had to be so much better than every other woman around and that much better even probably than a lot of the actors it, I wonder if that's what produced some of that um, definitely not diminishing any of their natural talent or abilities but I wonder how much of that was created by the only with so many women, even today, trying so hard to be in film, and especially in this era. And I think in this era, it was easy for a man to be cast in a certain role if he looked a certain way. But I mm-hmm. think it was very hard. It wouldn't surprise me to learn, I should say, that it would be very hard to be cast as a woman because every woman out there, it seems to be drop dead gorgeous. Of course, at the time, they all had the same hairstyle. <laughs> you know, if you were a natural brunette, it didn't matter. You're blonde now, you know, that's how it is. And so I wonder if, you know, like Rita LaRoy's character is obviously the evil character. And right, you, the femme fatale. Yeah. But if you wanted to be, you know, the leading actress in this, you had to be a much, much better actor than both the men around you and the women around you to be recognized at all. Uh, that is pure speculation on my part. I was not around in the 1930s, but it wouldn't surprise me to learn that. I think with the competition going on. It reminds me of, I, I hope I'm not putting this quote to the wrong person, but I think it's correct. I think, um, did not, didn't uh, Ginger Rogers said that she had to do everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards? I, I know that quote has been said of her. I don't know if she is who said it or not, but absolutely. That, I think that may have a little comparison to this mm-hmm. yeah and i think i i think you're exactly right i'm i'm so grateful to get to watch these movies and i'm so glad that we are looking at ones that aren't aren't in mainstream these days and aren't you know widely recognized or widely watched and i'm glad we get to the opportunity to speculate about this kind of thing i would love love to hear from somebody that was around almost 100 years ago now doing films of course you know the the nature of the beast is we're not able to talk to any of the individuals that that worked on this movie but you know i guess i guess that's what we're continuing to try to do we're continuing to dig around in the past and see what we can learn about this era and about the movies that weren't kept up because you learn so much about the movies that were maintained it's so easy to find out information about those but also that information, I think, is highly curated and was extremely mm-hmm. curated by the studios back in that time. And it, so, so it's interesting. It's, it's getting to solve our own little mysteries while we're digging through sometimes, sometimes not that engaging movies, <laughs> but definitely getting to learn about people that we wouldn't otherwise. So it's, it's so much fun to look into these, even, even watching to the end and being like, you know, oh, yay, okay, time to go to bed. It still is. You know, it still is more fun, I think, than some ways we could be spending our evenings. Definitely more interesting than some movies we could be watching today. <laughs> yeah. Well, in a film like this, too, I, I like it because uh, someone like Bessie Love, she's done so many films. I don't, I think, I believe this is the first one that we've come across uh, of her. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping we find others in, mm-hmm. you know, in the future. I agree. She becomes an actress after seeing her in this film and seeing those little bright moments mm-hmm. in this film, you're like, I want to see more of you. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of inspires me to go to kind of seek out more of her films and, and to be a woman of this time too, and to be a free agent, mm-hmm. you know, not studio uh, property, mm-hmm. be able to pick and choose and find roles that she wants to do. That makes you ever makes her even more interesting. And proves me. the skill she had. Because yeah, she could not have done that as a free agent if she weren't really exceptional at this time. Mm-hmm. It was just so easy for studios to get anybody to sign on. I mean, obviously, this film, would she was... Uh, no, I think she was. I think I did say that she was a free agent at this point uh, and did the work for RK. I don't remember if she was under contract with them at this point or if she was doing it on her own. But I mean, she does get top billing mm-hmm. you know, on the film. Yeah which I think is impressive. We've seen some other films where like <laughs> the guy comes on the film for like five yes. minutes and he's top billed when the woman carries the entire film mm-hmm. and she's somewhere like third down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
bottom billing on the poster. Well, at least my name's on it. But right. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to, I actually almost forgot to mention, it's so fascinating to me, and this is how we know this is pre-code, that you can see her kill a man on screen, and she still gets a happy ending. I just find that yes. fascinating with this story. Like, Yeah, you know, not even questioned by, you don't see her get dragged off downtown or anything nothing no well come down into questioning we i think the judge will understand no none of nothing. that nothing <laughs> the, the police all leave and she's left like okay that's it <laughs> thanks for helping us you know yeah it's so interesting because yeah because technically i mean was it self-defense he hadn't actually assaulted her or anything well he does tell her it is my intention to call a restaurant and have your brother murdered Right. And so it is defense. Uh, we would have to get a lawyer on to know for sure. <laughs> and especially during this era. But I got to say, during this era, I have a hard time believing it genuinely in 1930 that somebody would say, eh, well, maybe though, honestly, maybe this is the one time it could happen that they would say, oh, well, you were saving the DA's life. So you definitely are not going to go to trial for this. There's no way. Right. This, maybe this is the one time in American history where there's just not a trial required because clearly you're a good citizen. I don't know that I believe that. But, you know, again, <laughs> we're here to speculate, right? <laughs> well, I don't know if I have anything else to say about it. Uh, you got any last things we should rate it, maybe? I think we should rate it. <laughs> I almost forgot that we need to rate this thing. I was ready. Don't worry. <laughs> And it just occurred to me that I hadn't given it really that much thought. And now I'm going, this is another one of those tough ones. There are the moments where I'm going to say, yeah, you need to see this scene. But the film overall, eh. Yeah. Well, so I think about this movie and then I think about something like Rain. And for me, it puts it in into a really easy category. This is a cute movie. It's, you know, an okay storyline. It doesn't have, it has one moment in it that you go, oh, maybe I should rate it better for that one moment, but I don't think that's enough for me. Um, the, the rating for this on, you know, IMDb and a couple of the places is two, two and a half. I think two is Ooh. really fair. Uh, for our rating, I think a two is fair. For IMDb, because that's out of ten. <laughs> well, I, think I must that's have looked somewhere fresh. else. No, it's five point two out of ten on IMDb. I'm sorry, okay. I misspoke. Then that, <laughs> then that works out to be about yeah, the same. I, to where I think I I I must be mistaken. Is maybe it's YouTube that does a five star system. That doesn't sound right though. You don't rate things on. I don't, you don't know. Rate on YouTube. What the heck I did I watch from. this? <laughs> but wherever it was, it was two out of five stars. Just trust me on this. And I. Then yes, I think, I that's think a that is fair. fair rating. It's it's a movie that you know. It's not a hey, never watch this movie. It's just not mm -hmm. worth the time. But it is. It's also not a well. You know, if you're looking for, if you're kind of bored and you're looking for something to watch, but you know, you're not that into it. It's not a three because it's not a movie that I would say. Hey, you know, if you've just got the time, just go ahead and watch it. I don't feel like it warrants that. If you are really interested in watching movies from this era, if you're a Bessie Love completionist, uh, if you're a Christy Cabanek, you know, enthusiast, or Hugh Trevor, whoever's in this movie. Or if you've seen Ned Sparks in something and like, oh, it'd be really interesting to see him in a different movie too and compare and contrast. I think this is a great movie to watch. But there's enough uncomfortable weird in it <laughs> that <laughs> unless you're unless you have a real purpose. Or hey, here's a thought. If you watch or if you listen to this podcast, this is a great movie to watch. I, yeah, I, that's exactly. There you this go. is just a great movie to watch if you're going to listen to somebody talk about it. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, you know, if you don't have a real purpose behind it, you could you could let it go. So it's a two, I think. It doesn't have some of the major flaws that we've seen in other films. It doesn't hurt to get through. We've watched a couple of movies that are just painful. Um, this mm -hmm. one, once it gets going, you're you're kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I can roll with this. But so it's not a one. There's my over explanation for why I believe this is two Othels, not one, not three, but two. <laughs> yeah, no, and I agree. I think a two is, is is very fair. I was thinking maybe go on an extra half, but no, I, I two I think works very yeah. well. If you got to pick, watch Rain instead, especially if you're looking for a <laughs> yeah. dramatic movie 
<laughs> and I believe I, I want to say I remember re seeing somewhere where I think Rain just was released like like remastered on Blu-ray or something. Oh man! I mean, it it's a movie I absolutely need to revisit. I not to make this this episode about a different movie, <laughs> but. Um, gosh, it's been long enough since we reviewed it that it's probably worth a revisit. I do think you were right, though. I think Bessie Love is worth looking into. I actually had been thinking that earlier while we were recording. I'd love to see her in a couple of other things. Uh, I hadn't even thought about seeing if she develops more in her acting, but that's a that's even more of a an encouragement to do so for me. All right. Well, then I think that will do it. We'll be back in a month with another film. So thank you all very much for listening. Lydia, thank you as always. You. It's always a pleasure to talk to you about these, with these fun films. <laughs> uh, until next time, thanks for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.